Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Cam Connor, along with my son, Chris. We wanted to leave you with some of the best, most interesting stories that Cam has shared over the last episodes. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to them, but in case you haven't, I know everyone's busy. Here's a selection of what we think are some of the best. But I knew Maxie, I liked them. And if I like you, I like you. And so they were in town, and I think it was even Phoenix. And uh, he said, well, let's go for a beer after. So we went to this bar we would go, all the players would go to. And uh, Maxie said to me, he said, I bet you $100 I could drink a full beer in less than one second. You're on, buddy. That's a no-brainer. Who can drink a full beer in less than one second? I said, okay. And so what he, he had to get a certain glass that it wasn't a narrow mouth on it. It was a wider one. And so this bar had one, and so he put a full beer in it. And now, believe me, you're going to find it hard to believe, all right? But I was sitting there watching the guy. He just put his head back, and he, I don't know how you do it. He opened his throat up, and he just put his the beer to his lips and then tilted it back, boom, boom, and it was down. It's just like throwing it over your shoulder and putting your glass down. He, yeah, are you sure he didn't throw it over his shoulder? <laughs> yeah. Well... <laughs> I had my buddy Roddy Piper fool me a few times with throwing some drinks over his shoulder. But, no, I watched him, and I'll be damned, man. Honest to God, I know it's hard to believe, but I saw it. So I had to pay him 100 bucks. He did it. So the next day, you know, I'm in the dressing room because I know Maxie's around for a day or two. And I say to the guys in the team, you should see this guy. And they said, not a chance. You can't drink it in less than one second. I said, I bet whoever wants to bet, step up. I had a lot of money coming at me, and I'm going to say two to three hundred bucks. I was betting the guys on the team. They all showed up at the bar, a different bar though, and they couldn't find the wide mouth glass that Maxie likes. So he had to settle for a, 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 like a, a glass that wasn't as wide up top as what he would prefer. Anyways, he it probably took him a second and a half. So I lost two to three hundred bucks on that. So. Anyways, that's what I think about Maxie, man. I've never seen a guy drink a beer so fast. You can Google Brian Maxwell. He had an interesting career. And um, and again, he got into coaching. Uh, and Maxie, if you're listening, send me an email, buddy. The name of Kim Claxi. And Kim, I first met Kim when I was 18 years old. And I was playing for the Winnipeg Junior Jets. You know, we were on a two or three road, three two or three week road trip, and the coach said to us, "It was going to be rough hockey. Only Cam and Blair, you're allowed to fight." So I, I didn't play much shift. And when we got back off that road trip, I said, "No way, I'm playing hockey like this. Just going to be the fighter." So I quit the team. And the coach says, "Well, we got to trade you. Where do you not want to play?" And I said, "Well, I don't want to go to Victoria or Vancouver because you didn't have very good hockey teams." So what does the coach do? Trades me to Victoria. So, at 19, I went to Victoria's training camp. And, you know, I was the tough guy in Manitoba Junior. I've got articles 
written by reporters saying that I was the toughest guy and there was nobody even close to me in fighting ability. And I guess management knew that I could fight. And so they wanted to see me roughing it up and playing that aggressive game. And so there was a guy on Victoria's team. He had played the year before when he was 17. So he's 18 and I was 19. And uh, this is true. You knew the guy was a fighter because Kim, he couldn't, his name was Kim Claxton. He couldn't shoot the puck. He was a defenseman from, you know, in the offensive zone from the, from, he was a defenseman at the blue line. He couldn't take a slap shot from the blue line to the net in the air. It would take one bounce. And it was his second year in the Western Hockey League, which is the top junior league in Canada. And I was, remember, I was surprised going, he can't even shoot, you know, in, in the air from the blue line to hit the net. You know, you knew he was a tough guy, and that's why he was there. And he used to beat up Clark Gillies on a regular basis. Like, this boy was tough. So, we had a scrimmage the very first day I'm there, and Kim Cox and I are on the same team. And we're having our scrimmage, and in in the middle of the scrimmage, the coach blows the whistle, and he says, "Uh, Kim, uh, you go on the other team over there, switch with that defenseman. So, right away, I knew... He wanted us to fight. That's why he put Kim out there against me. And Kim knew what he was supposed to do. So the puck goes into his end. He grabs the puck, stands behind the net. I'm coming in full tilt. And he could have moved the puck if he wanted to. And then, you know, I probably had no reason to hit him because he didn't have the puck anymore. But Kim put the puck between his feet. And he waited for him behind the net. So I'm coming in full tilt. Bang! We both knew we were fighting. So as soon as we collided, the gloves were off. And we had a great fight. And so I knew he was one tough boy. He was a lefty as well. And he knew I was tough. Well, at the end of training camp, the coach, you know, we had some more exhibition games. And he was interested in me being the fighter. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because you want me to do it. If something happens, I'll do it. And so I just didn't, I didn't play my game because I didn't want to be that guy. Kim, he did that. He fought lots of guys, and boy, he killed them. So, anyways, I get treated to Flynn Fawn, and then, you know, it's how interesting that was, right? He told me, Victoria coach, that I was the biggest disappointment in training camp. So, go to Flynn Fawn. Well, the rest, you can look up my stats. So, I had an outstanding year there, and 300-and-something, 70-something penalty minutes, and uh, 47 goals. So, I had a great year. When I first got there, the coach says to me, Patty Janelle, he says, I got a chance to get this guy in in Victoria. His name is Kim Claxon. What do you think? I said, get him. Because hockey back then was so rough. He said, you think so? I said, get him. So they traded a pretty good hockey player to Victoria. We got Claxon. And when the two of us were on the same team, we made music. We had a very tough team. Plus, there was a few other supporting cast members. And we made them braver. But... Claxon. So I fought him in Victoria. We hung around all the time, but we were both competitive and we're not backing down. We ended up fighting in the dressing room. He still had his skates on and he come at me and I'm in my bare feet and all I'm thinking about is he's going to chop my toes off this guy. So we were fighting in the dressing room and just so happens, I don't even know why, but the coach of Swift Current Broncos, I believe his last name was Dunn, Happened to comes in our dressing room, and he sees us fighting. Everybody else was not getting in there on our team. And he jumped in there to break up the fight. And I think Claxton ended up hooking him because he was in the wrong spot. But so, so I would say Kim Claxton is another top five fighter. 
And I've, I've mentioned before, with Kim Coxon, he was fearless. He fought all the tough guys, fought Semenko five times in one game. He had no problem fighting anybody. So I definitely, definitely would put Kim Coxon in the top five. And I believe he lives in Pittsburgh today. He's uh, in the insurance business, and he's doing very, very well for himself. I just always think of such a, a tough fighter, but with the name Kim. I know. <laughs> I know. So you recently on Twitter acknowledged the death of a hockey legend, Johnny Bauer, who is someone that you met and someone that you respected and admire. So do you have anything to say about Johnny Bauer? And maybe for those who don't know, talk a little bit about his impact on the game. I'm more attracted to modest people, modest athletes. There's a lot of showboats out there. Look at me, look at me. I don't really get along with those type of athletes when they got to have all the attention drawn to them. I just never respected that. Johnny Bauer was somebody that accomplished way more than I would ever accomplish or a lot of other players. He worked hard. Being a goalie, was in the minors for quite a long time. He got his big break. I believe it was with Toronto Maple Leafs. And he played in the air when there was only six teams out there. And they, everybody has seen the old clips where the goalie is in net with little skinny pads and no mask on and they're diving in front of pucks. And Johnny, if you, if you, if you were up close, you could see that his face stopped a lot of pucks. Like he had a nice friendly grandfather look about him. He was quiet. He was humble. He had a wonderful smile that made you feel welcome when you were with him. I only got to know him probably for about six, seven hours. We golfed together in a tournament, golf tournament in Toronto. I had a, a group with me, and so we golfed in five sums, and Johnny Bowers had five in his group, so they made us all golf together. So walking around the course, uh, got to know Johnny, and then after at the banquet, we sat next to each other. I really liked the fellow. He was an older man, but warm and just, a, again, a modest fella. You have to kind of pull the stories out of out of him. But I, I remember sitting with Johnny at that banquet after, and I said to Johnny, I said, you know, Johnny, you screwed me around when I was a kid. And he kind of looked at me quizzical, and he says, well, what do you mean? Well, the story is, is when I was living in Winnipeg, I think I was in, like, grade 8, and I was at the junior high, and I had read, and you know, we didn't have a pro team in Winnipeg, and I had read in the paper that Johnny Bauer and Eddie Schacht were coming to Winnipeg, and they were signing autographs at the high school, which was about a five-minute walk from our junior high. I said, I have got to get over there and get their autographs. Now, I didn't watch very much hockey at all, but when there's a goalie that doesn't wear a mask, even if you're just walking by the TV, you're going to remember that face for sure. So when I went over to the high school, I snuck out of class, actually, and, and uh, I just buggered off. And I went over there, and I stood in line, and I got to, uh, it was in Johnny Bauer's line, and I get up front, and I got my pen and paper, and I politely asked Johnny if he could please sign, it, like get an autograph. And he said, well, for sure. So he signed my sheet of paper, and it said, I believe it says something like, you know, best wishes, Eddie Shock. And I, I look, I look at that and, and I'm, 
And I look at Johnny Power, and I just get out of line, and I'm saying, I must have these guys mixed up. So I get in Eddie Schatz's line, and I get up to the front, and I politely ask for his autograph. And then he, Shaq signs it, Johnny Bauer. So I said, okay, obviously I got these two guys mixed up. And I went home and I pinned it on the wall. And months later, when they're back on TV, sure enough, I was right. Eddie Shaq was, Johnny Bauer was in that, and Eddie Shaq was on the forward line. So now I'm with Johnny Bauer. And I, and I was telling him this story. And he starts laughing. He says, I remember that. And I said, what do you mean you remember that? He said, back in those days, he said, when I was playing with the Leafs, outside the Maple Leaf Gardens, fans would ask me for an autograph. So I go to autograph a sheet that's already got player signatures on it. And I noticed my name was already signed on there. And he couldn't figure this out. And so one day he caught on. He said to me that Eddie Shack was illiterate. He couldn't read or write, at least back in those days. He said, and Eddie couldn't write his own name, he said, but for some reason, he could write my name. And so Eddie Shack, when people asked for the autograph, used to just sign at Johnny Bauer. So Johnny said, ah, screw it. And he just started signing at Eddie Shack. So I found that pretty comical. And, you know, if Eddie couldn't read or write, he should have done well for himself outside of hockey. Uh, understand he's a multi-millionaire, so good for you, buddy. Disrespect those guys. Because they could go ahead and play the tough guy role. Because, as you could see, in any games, if anybody touches their goalie outside the crease, it's like a swarm of bees coming after you. You're going to get... That's an unwritten rule. If somebody touches your goalie, go after that guy right away. So it wouldn't necessarily be one guy come after, we'll say, Chris Nyland who ran the goalie. You would get four, five, six, and it would it would be a big kerfuffle on that ice. But these goalies that I've talked about, and there's only, that's just a couple names, those guys, if you put them on a team that had no tough guys, believe me, believe me, those guys wouldn't be two-handing you over the ankles because they would pay a price. Every single person that got two-handed over the ankles would go after those goalies so quick, and all of a sudden they wouldn't be doing it anymore. But they knew that they could do it because they had all that backing. And those guys can't even fight. Hell, they're goalies, right? I mean, I remember I... Well, I won't even tell that story. Tell it, tell it. Well, I'll tell part of the story. I, I, I fought a guy one time when I was in the world hockey. I didn't think I did anything to him, but he took his goalie stick and he broke it right over my back. Like it went in two. He alka-bunged me. So I got to go after the guy. He wants to fight me. But he keeps his mask on. He keeps both gloves on. And he's got that broken half of the stick. So how am I going to hurt this guy, right? I mean, how am I going to hurt him? So I went at him, and of course I was, probably wasn't smart. I, I took my gloves off, but what what can you do? So somehow, no, I don't even actually tell you. Well, I'll tell you. I'm a little embarrassed about this, but this guy pissed me off because he broke his dick over me. So I got to go after him, and somehow my head ended up under behind his back. I don't know how to explain it. And knowing I can't hurt the guy, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but I'll tell you, I end up biting the guy. Just like Mike Tyson did. So, Chris, you got me embarrassed here. But I I bit the guy. 
And I know after the game, I had a friend on the other TV come up to me and he said, I saw so-and-so in the shower. Did you bite him? And I started laughing. I said, well, I did. Because I, what can I do to the guy? That's all I could do. And it was just at the spur of the moment. So just in case, uh, that's the only time I ever bit anybody. So that's a little embarrassing. I probably should delete that. You go wild when you fight. We know that. So it's, it's, <laughs> we get it. So, yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed. But. You know, I mean, I've got, obviously, I can tell you about my injuries. I can tell you about a couple of the worst injuries I've seen. Uh, when I was in the world hockey, you can wear two types of glove. One, you know, that goes maybe three or four or five inches over your wrist, and there's some that are a bit, little bit longer that cover more. And uh, this guy was wearing the shorter version of the of the hockey glove, and he he got knocked down, and a guy skated over his wrist, the inside of the wrist, and. Who was the player? His name was Barry Dean. And Barry, that's, I'm glad I brought that name up. He's a hilarious guy. I got to get Barry on here. But he got his wrist skated over by one of his best friends, a guy he used to play with, a guy named Brian Maxwell, who was a tough boy. He skated over Barry's wrist. And even though Barry's glove was still on, I was on the ice and I hear Barry in the corner yelling for the trainer. And I'm thinking, Don't just skate over there. And then he pulled his glove off. And the blood vessels and some nerves were cut. And, and honest to God, it must have shot two to three feet in the air, the blood. And so Brian was smart enough that he quickly dropped his stick and gloves and went over and he cut off the blood flow. So he grabbed to the left and to the right of where the cut was. And then the trainers came and, you know, he had a lot of surgery. But that was a messy one, and he was out, uh, I, I can't even remember, but probably four to six weeks with that injury, maybe longer. And uh, it, it, it was pretty bad, but at the end of the day, uh, and we'll get Barry on to talk about that, but I think uh, he didn't pay any price for that. I think he has a little bit of numbness in some of his fingers. So that was probably the worst. And then, so with Barry Dean, that was that was the worst that I actually saw. And, you know, over the years, I mean, hockey, it's a contact sport. And so numerous, you know, broken noses. I've seen knocked out teeth. I've seen guys get the, well, another good one now that I'm thinking about it, is uh, we had a guy named Mignon was his last name. And it was in Phoenix. And our goalie skated into, cor into the corner to play the puck. And wouldn't you know it, he passes it in his own end, to the other team. And the other team was against the board, their player, and they passed it to the slot. And one of our fours, Mignon, J.C. Mignon was his name, he sees the empty net, so he goes, well, I guess I got to jump in there. So he stood in the net like a goalie, and the guy on the other team who got the puck in the slot, he wound up for a wicked slap shot. It wasn't a quick wrist shot. He took a slap shot. And J.C. couldn't even move. It hit him, you know, right on the bridge of the nose. And, and you might think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not kidding. This puck pushed in his nose about an inch or two, and the puck was stuck in his face. Like it was just, it just lodged in his nose. It was pushed in so much. And obviously, he went right down, and the trainer came on. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen somebody with a broken nose. So they've got a packet with gauze. 
And so he was out for a hell of a long time. And uh, I was in the dressing room when it was time to take the gauze out of his nose. Like, you can't even believe how much gauze is jammed up a nose when you've broken it. So anyways, JC said, I will never the rest of my life ever jump in net again. Never, ever again. He paid a wicked price. Imagine, the puck was stuck in his face. That's a true story. The difference between an enforcer and a goon, that is so easy. When you go back and you listen to my world hockey stories, and you look at that old movie, I believe it was like 77, Slapshot, those guys were goons. In the world hockey, we had guys that only, and I would say, you know, teams we played, some of them have as many as five guys just sitting on the bench, and uh, the coach would send them out to fight. And you try to play hockey by, you know, being aggressive and you're taking a body and maybe you're making a difference in the game. And the coach says, go out there and get Connor. And they don't play a regular shift. They just sit on the bench until it gets rough and you go out and fight. That's the reason I quit my junior team at 18 years old. The coach wanted to use me as the goon. Sit on the bench, got rough, they'd stick me out there. I'm not playing that hockey. You give me a regular shift, things will happen anyway. So I quit the team. In the world hockey in particular, it was just goofy. There was guys that just couldn't play a regular shift. They were on a team. They should have been in the minors. But that was the style of hockey. And I blame the referees as well. You could pretty well do anything you wanted back in the world hockey. You could slash, two-hand, cross-check, punch a guy in the head, spear guys. Like, I saw all, and I did some of that myself. But they didn't call any of that shit. And so today, you know, I believe that, uh, so let me go back. So the difference between an enforcer and what was the other, and a goon? Okay. Yeah, so the enforcer was a guy like Bob Probert, for example, that could play, he could get a regular shift, and when he's on the ice, like a goon, he doesn't know how to play his position. He runs all over the ice chasing the puck. And he costs you goals when he's out there and not fighting. And an enforcer is a guy that plays, and I, and I would say like a Wilson, just because, you know, we're talking about him. He plays an aggressive game. He takes the body. He gets involved. That's the difference. Is, is an enforcer or somebody that can play a regular shift, get involved, stand up for his teammates, but he can play the game of hockey. So, there is a major difference between the two individuals. And, 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 and you look today, I don't know if it's just me because of my era that I played in. Like, I can't even believe the pen, And I don't think the players on the ice can believe the penalties that they're getting. It's not even taking away scoring chances. It's not hurting anybody. It's not even, you know screwing up a play. You get somebody just raising their stick up and, and bang a shin pad or a little touch around the hand. It is so minor. It doesn't affect the game one little bit. And they're calling penalties. I mean, as I said before, hockey used to be a man's game. And when I see them taking the fighting out of hockey, which to some degree, that's okay. But I'm starting to think that, and I, and I like soccer, but I don't like the soccer players that, you know, you see them, something happens, and they're rolling on the pitch that as if they've got like a bazooka shot at them, 
And then they show the replay, and there was nothing there. They're just faking it. And I can see that in the NHL now. When I see um, somebody does something to somebody, even the goalies, they're just faking all their stuff. And the, the really the way you can tell, especially if you've played the game of hockey, when you have scrimmages and practices, you know, you see, you rarely go down. When somebody hits you or something, you don't go down. But in the game, some of these slashes, high sticks, you know, and I'm using that. It's not really hitting you hard. But these guys are going down as if they've been hurt. And even the goalies, as soon as the stick is near them, they're flopping on the ice. And the refs are calling it. That's just BS. Hockey is starting to turn into a little bit like the soccer, which really disgusts me. You know, when guys get stitches, they go right back out and play. When they get cuts, they go right back out and play. So don't start rolling around. Yeah, I know you could get the team a penalty, the other team a penalty. But, you know, be a man and uh, play the game the way it's supposed to be played. So we have a question that... You might need to think about uh, before you answer, but it's from Kevin M. in San Francisco. And he wants, or he is asking, if you have any regrets or missed opportunities uh, to do with hockey. Well, you know, that I really do believe, and I, I would think that anybody that stays in hockey when it's over is because they believe that they're good at what they do and they can contribute to the uh, if you're an assistant coach, a coach, you know, working with the players, um, a scout, you could contribute by finding good players, good talent. Uh, that's what I wanted to do so bad after hockey. I just didn't, you know, I think we, this is just me analyzing myself after the fact. But when I look back, I was aggressive, uh, even off the ice. And uh, I kind of always said what was on my mind and, and you know, looking back, the guys that uh, that I know that are still in hockey, they're two different people. Like, around the rink, they were the nicest to management, and you could never find fault. And those are the guys that everybody wants to, to bring along. So, so, for me, I didn't really have that opportunity. I've mentioned before, I hung around with George McPhee, and George told me uh, when I was coaching five or six games in the American League with a last-place team, and we won, and we weren't making the playoffs, and I won. We won every single game that I coached. And uh, I remember the first-place team, we beat them in their own rink, and their coach, his name was John Paddock. He ran on the ice, and he said, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? I really honestly believe that I had a a love and a, I really wanted to see the players do well. It was through a lot of uh, analyzing and bringing out the positives and it was just a feel that I had, but I don't think, because I'm two different people, you know, playing the game and around the rink, but as soon as I had a coaching hat on, I was a whole different person. And I don't think anybody could look beyond just the kind of guy I was to see that, you know, George told me, you know, Kim, because he was on the team for those five or six games, and he came up to me back then. He said, you are an awesome coach. You're going to do a great job. And the players on the team, they said, we want you to coach next year. And can we sign a petition for you and give it to management? And I said, well, no, but thank you very much. Well, why would you say no? Well, I, you know, because that wouldn't do anything. Like, the management didn't care. This was the Rangers 
farm team in New Haven shared with the Los Angeles Kings. The Kings owned the, the, the franchise itself. I didn't really know any of the management. And so they got rid of the coach that year. The coach, the, the position was open. I, I really thought that uh, I'd have a chance at that position. So, yeah, maybe looking back, I should have said to the guys, get involved, guys, if that's going to get me the job. But as it worked out, uh, their management, L.A.'s management, was Pat Quinn and a guy named Rogie Vashaw. They came to New Haven, Connecticut, and I'd lived an hour away, and I slept in the dressing room overnight. It was freezing in there, man. I put a bunch of towels on me because I didn't want to miss these guys. You know, they they said, okay, we'll interview you, but they just went through the motions. They, was, they were not serious about me whatsoever. And uh, they ended up hiring Robbie Fatorik for the job. I played with Robbie for two, three, four years, and that's who I was competing against. But really, that's who they wanted. So they, they did me a favor and interviewed me, but I, I know for sure that they were never serious about me. But And that's why I've tried to get on with George over 20 years. And uh, obviously, the longer you're out of the game of hockey, the less desirable you are. So, you know. And then I tried to get on with Don Maloney when he was with Phoenix because I played in Phoenix and I used to be a crowd favorite. And uh, he 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 got back to me and he said, you know, you can tell it's just a brush off. He, he said, okay, we'll put your resume on file and as soon as something you're qualified for comes up, then we'll give you a call. Yeah, right. So, you know, he's in uh, Calgary now. He's, I think he's assistant general manager and I wish him all the best. But I wanted to get on, but I just didn't have that one guy to believe uh, uh, in me. Um, Phyllis Mizzidu did hire me as a scout my first year out of hockey. I was doing 9 to 5 in New York City on the weekend. I was in charge of college Division One hockey. And so I traveled around. I just loved it. Phil got let go. Somebody else came in. And that was the end of me. And Mom and me have a theory. Or is it Mom and I? But either way... We think that you, uh, it's also a networking problem where you're really nice to like the, the janitors, That's true. That is the, true. the people at the, unfortunately, at the bottom of the, the rung and you're spending your, like that, that story with what Johnny with the short leg, Tony, Tony with the short leg. You spend so much time with the, the everyday guy and not spending time getting to know the management or, you know, playing the game and getting on their radar. Uh, that probably bitch in the butt. Well, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, when the first time I ever got sent to the minors, it was by Craig Patrick with the New York Rangers. And uh, he sent me to the minors, and I didn't even see it coming. Because, you know, beginning of the season, I had a lot of chances to score. And when you get chances to score, that means you're doing something right, and it's just a little while longer, and you'll start figuring out. All of a sudden, I was at the rink skating that morning, and I go, and Craig was there. I go home, and he phones me, and he tells me I'm sent to the farm team. And I said, Craig, could you just give me another shot at it? Maybe I wasn't fighting. I wasn't as aggressive. And, and he just said, no, that's it. And so um, years later, we were riding on a bus and playing for the Ranger baseball team. And we were sitting next to each other, and he said to me, he said, Cam, how come when I come in the dressing room, you used to give me dirty looks? I said, Craig, why would I give the general manager, a guy, you know, who's in charge of my future, why would I give you dirty looks? And he said, 
Well, I, I couldn't really figure that out, and, and I thought about it. And, uh, you know, there's certain people that always have smiles, and they look very approachable. And I know, I think I take after my father, that, uh, you know, if there's nothing on my mind, I might, it just be, might be a natural look that's a frown. And maybe that's what Craig Patrick was thinking, that when he walked by, I was just looking at him. I, I wasn't, there was no judgment or giving him dirty looks, but maybe, maybe that's the case. But you're right, Chris. I never, uh, I never, I have trouble with authority, I guess, and, uh, and maybe it showed and it's too bad. Yeah, I don't think it's a frown. I think it's just intensity. Um, and <laughs> try being the son of someone that intense when you get in trouble, but we don't have to talk about <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's why you're so nice today. <laughs> And before we uh, continue, we'll remind you of Dad's social media, which is Cam Connor NHL for Twitter. And uh, you can always send an email at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. And we have one from Tammy, who is in Montreal. And make sure you tell us where you're from. It's interesting to see where all the listeners are coming from. And she wants to know if you have any more Scotty Bowman stories to share. Well, you know... After 24 podcasts, it's kind of hard to remember what you told and what you haven't told. But here's one that, uh, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, with Scotty, you can't take away all the Stanley Cups he's got. I mean, obviously, he's done something right. He's a grouchiest coach, but I think that he comes from that era, like Toe Blake kind of passed the torch to him. So as I've mentioned before, when I was in Montreal, I went to visit Toblake and, uh, you know, I asked him if he had to be a prick to coach because of the way Bowman was treating me and how he treated others as well. And he said you had to. So I think that accounts for a lot of the negative interaction, if any interaction, that he would have with his players other than when he had to talk to us. But is that is this feeling about him common? You've heard this from a few people. Well, I know when I played, there was things that Bowman told us that if we did this and this on the road trip, this is what he was going to do for us. And so everybody followed the rules. And then when it comes time for us to reap the rewards, uh, Bowman changed his mind on us. And I'm not kidding you, just about every guy was going to revolt. Except, you know what, if it's not the whole team revolting, then it kind of breaks down. So one or two or three of the guys say, well, you know, he did lie to us, but we're, we're still going to, you know, go back on the airplane. And so we all ended up going back. So that's maybe another story. But, you know, when you ask me about Bowman, one of the things I remember, and he's the only coach that did this, is, what you know, the coach is your boss. And he could determine whether you get ice time, whether you sit on the bench, so you do what the coach says. So he'd blow the whistle and he on the ice and we'd all skate over and we'd listen to what he had to say and he would talk so quietly and when you got twenty guys in the semicircle around him, you know, there's other noises going around uh, in a hockey rink and uh he'd be just talking very quietly and we'd look at each other and we'd say, What did he say? And they'd go, I don't I don't know and what I found out is that Bowman would, on purpose, talk very quietly. And then he'd say, okay, here's the next drill, and this is what you do, and you start from here. Because he wanted to make people listen to him. So what he would do 
is he talked real quietly. And some days you could hear him. Other days you didn't know what he just said to you, what the next drill would, would be. But what would he do? He would turn around and he'd say, you know, to guys like myself or Rick Chartra or, or uh, Pierre LaRouche, guys that he could pick on with no repercussions. He would say, okay, Cam, go, go, start the drill right away. And I go, well, I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. What do you mean you didn't hear? I just told you guys. And he would ostracize me and belittle me and yell at me in front of all the other guys. But he couldn't do it to Lafleur or Robinson. He'd never say, okay, Guy, start going. And because Guy said, well, we didn't hear you. Oh, well, let me explain it again. But that doesn't how it worked with Bowman. So that's one of the things I remember. Scotty would talk quietly. So you had to listen. And you just prayed that uh, maybe you picked up, but you heard a little bit of what he said or you knew the drill he wanted you to do. And if he called your name out to start the drill off, uh, uh, at least you could do what he asked you. But he talked too quietly all the time. That's what I remember about Bowman. And earlier today, you you were telling me a story about a power outage. Do you want to share that? Yeah, that was, uh, again, I don't know. I got this black cloud. So in Montreal, when we had charter flights, we were playing, say, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Toronto, some of these cities that are hour, hour and a half flight away, we would have charter flights. And we would go out of, out of a smaller airport. And uh, it was routine. We'd leave by 10 in the morning. So we had gone out on so many of these. So it was routine. You get up at a certain time and you put your, you know, you shower and you shave and you put your suit and tie on and you leave the door at the same time. And you arrived at the airport in plenty of time for your 10 o'clock flight. So this one morning, you know, I'd got up just, I, I set my alarm and got up routine, showered, shaved, getting my suit on. I had the TV on, kind of watching it as I was putting on my tie. And then I remember seeing this show that I liked that came on every day after I would leave for the smaller airport for the charter flights. And I said, oh, maybe they moved this up. That's interesting. And then I said, no, don't tell me. So I got this awful feeling that I've missed my flight. Something was wrong. And I looked at the clock. No, no, I'm, I'm right on time. So I still didn't trust things. So I phoned the operator. And I said, you know, what time is it? Thinking that my clock said 9 o'clock. She said 10 o'clock. So I said, what? So anyways, back in those days you get your digital alarm clocks that you plug in, there was an exactly a one-hour power shortage um, to my neighborhood. And today's digital alarm clocks, if there's an outage, you see it flashing when you wake up so you know something happened. Back in those days, there was no such mechanism to warn you that there was a power outage. And it was exactly one hour. So anyways, so I've, I've missed my flight and you don't do that in, in any of the pro sports world. So I'm feeling pretty bad, but, you know, I mean, the truth is the truth. I It wasn't me sleeping in or you partied the night before. And uh, so I phoned the Canadian's office and I asked for the highest ranking individual that was in the office. And it was uh, a guy named Ron Caron, who was head of all our scouting. And so I get him on the phone and I explain what had happened that uh, 
you know, power outage. You could even check with the operators or phone the power company and they'll back up my story. And he just said to me, you know what? We had a guy who would uh, pull that kind of crap and uh, we would we sent him to the farm team right away. And so he was so mad at me. And he said, get your butt to, let's say it was in uh, Detroit. He said, get your butt to Detroit. You're paying your own flight and get down there right now. So I went and paid my own flight to Detroit and show up at the rink. And Bowman wouldn't talk to me. I tried to explain what had happened. And they just, not the players, but this coaching staff, Claude Rowell, they shunned me and I sat in the stands and, you know, get on the charter on the way home and nobody in this coaching staff would talk to me. But uh, how unfortunate, again, you know, like there's no need for them to get mad at me because it wasn't anybody's fault. It was a power outage. And uh, again, you know, I've talked a lot about there's just two levels of players. And if you're a superstar, you don't go through the stuff that I had to go through. So that was something I'm sure that if uh, Larry Robinson, Ken Dryden said this is what happened, they go, okay, well, you know, you're still playing tonight. Get your butt down here. So that's another story that happened to me in Montreal. Most unfortunate, but it is what it is. So I was recently in San Diego, and you mentioned that that triggered a couple stories that you have of San Diego. I know a lot of people don't think of hockey when they think of San Diego, but uh, why don't you share what came to mind for you, Dad? Well, that's exactly right. Chris wrote San Diego, and that's kind of how a lot of my stories come back to me. There's something that's got to trigger that memory. And uh, I remember when I played in the world hockey and I was playing with Phoenix Roadrunners, and we went to San Diego to take on the San Diego Gulls. And we're on the bench, and there's a guy behind the bench who's acting like a tough guy, swearing and... You know, right behind the bench, there's a glass separating us. And he's just getting on everybody's nerves. He's banging on the glass. So a couple of the boys turned around on the bench, you know, and told the guy, oh, you're pretty tough behind the glass. Why don't you come over here? So the guy, he actually hopped over the glass onto the bench, and he pulled out this big buck knife out of his boot. And he stood on the... uh, on our bench with this knife. Well, what a big mistake. Because you get 20 hockey players um, with hockey sticks. And what are you, like five feet long, these hockey sticks? And so, you know what? When you see a guy with a knife there, so they started spearing at this guy and swinging the sticks to knock the knife off. So he got kind of pounded on the bench. And then the police ran out onto the ice, grabbed this guy, and, you know, I I know in some of the rinks, when the police get involved, they're not going to punch anybody in front of the fans. But when they get them in the back room, they work these guys over. So, But these cops were punching this guy all the way off the ice. So he got kind of rocked on our bench, and then he got beat up off the ice. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but uh, that's uh, that was one of the things that just reminded me. I've never seen that before, and I was pretty foolish of that guy to come on our bench. Because, you know what, I think, if, if I'm right, if a fan reaches over the glass and does something or tries to do something, and we swing at his arm that's over the glass, we can't get charged for assault. If we reached over 
the glass towards where the fans are on their side of the glass, and we did something, then we're in trouble. So, you know, we just knew that that guy, you know, he was stupid to come over on our side of the glass. And the other thing when I think about San Diego, I had talked in my previous podcast about this coach that I had in Phoenix. His name was Sandy Huckle. I've already said enough about him. But, you know, as I mentioned before, he just came up to me before I ever put skates on for the hockey team. I was number five in the NHL draft, which is not too bad. So I got to have a little bit of talent. And he just came up to me before I even went to training camp and said, I'm going to do my best to send you to the farm team. You're not going to play for me if, uh, if I can't send you down there. So, you know, I, I, I've already talked about the way he treated me and embarrassed me. And, you know, most people that in sports and in the real world, we got pride. And so he, he I just curse that guy many times for how he embarrassed me. So we were in San Diego. Me and a couple of the young guys, we're not getting any ice time at all. We don't even feel like part of the team. We don't even know why he brings us on the road. He was just pretty bad to us. You know, as a hockey player, you eat about noon hour, 12.30, and then... So, make a long story short, I'm, you know, it's between the second and third, and I don't think I played at all. And I was getting hungry. So, I asked the stick boy, I said, here. Give me some money. Go get me a hot dog, but sneak it into the dressing room, will you? And I'll meet you in the back there. So he snuck a hot dog in, and I'm hiding in the back. And I'm starting to eat my hot dog. Well, I got all my gear on. And wouldn't you know, Sandy Huckle walks into the back room as I'm taking a bite out of my hot dog, which is a big no-no during the game. So, of course, he loses it on me and flips out. So if you're trying to impress a coach that doesn't like you, don't eat a hot dog between periods. Okay, so uh, I know a few, well, you actually got a lot of response to your uh, Paul Coffey story from the Humboldt Jersey event that you went to last night or two nights ago. So you will, I will ask you about that. But uh, there's a story about a train, and I've heard it a few times growing up, and I asked if you would share it, and you thought it was probably too morbid to share but I think you tell the story really well and uh it's a sad story but it's uh I think it's it's one of those stories that I remember from car trips and just talking and when we'd visit Winnipeg you and we'd uh drive past I guess like a train station or the train tracks you would bring it up a few times and uh I remembered so I said why don't you why don't you share that story you didn't want to and then you said you would so uh, if you share the train story, and then we'll get back to um, your event that you went to. Well, it's just a story. I don't know. There's no moral to this. It's, it's It was a sad story that uh, I was playing pro my first, second, third year away from uh, Winnipeg playing pro, and I talked to one of the brothers that I hung around with, and this story happened to his brother. And it was... Uh, a family out of Winnipeg that, when I was growing up, they were very, very kind. They never had a lot of money. The mother and father really worked hard, and they had six or seven kids, two girls and five boys. They didn't have much, but boy, I know every time I went over, they'd feed me, and they were just a wonderful family. And uh, They didn't have much, but 
I, I, well, obviously, I've never forgot this family just because I just saw how giving they were without expecting anything in return but friendship. And what had happened is, you know, these five brothers, they're all pretty close. And the one brother, he, uh, he, he only had, he, he didn't really hang around with too many people, but he fell in love with a girl who was much like himself. They only really liked, loved each other. And, and at about 13, 14 years old, that's, they only hung around with each other. And they they were in love. You could tell. And so he worked at what was called the CN Railways. So he was at work one day. And, and I got to say, you know, he might have been, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm guessing on this, you know, 18. He'd quit school and uh, was trying to make some money. And again, you know, he had his fiancée. But they were like long. They just were in love. I mean, you could tell. It was just those two in the whole world. Anyways, he was at work, and, you know, they go over safety, especially around trains. If you've ever seen trains kind of get connected, they got these kind of couplings. I don't know if that's the right name. These couplings that when they back into each other, then they lock, and that's how they connect. And so he was on one side, you know, waving to the, the train driver, you know, moving forward, move back, or just wait a second, and... Anyways, for some reason, he gave a signal and nothing would happen. So he decided he had to go on the other side of the train. So he went to slip through where, you know, the opening, there was an opening between these two couplings because it hadn't backed up yet. So he had to go to the other side. So he foolishly just walked between the two. And wouldn't you know it, that was exactly when the train backed into the other one to connect it. He got caught in the middle. And uh, he, it, it, the way I understand it, is he got he got crushed his lower body, but he was still alive. And then when they found out what happened, they quickly called his family, and his brothers and sisters and his fiance, because they knew as soon as they pulled it apart, that he was going to die. So they brought the family members, you know, to his site while he was still alive to say goodbye. And, and his fiance too. And obviously, if you see your son or sibling or anybody you know kind of in that situation, it'll scar you for life. And uh, so they had told me the story, um, you know, what I'm just relaying to you. And it, it always bothered me that, uh, you know, you'd have to go say, say goodbye to somebody you love. But as soon as they pull it apart, he's dead. And so that's the story I uh, told my son. And as you can see, that's quite uh, a memorable story, and hopefully it's not too morbid, but to me, I actually think they could probably make a movie out of that. It's um, it's sad, but it's, it's interesting, um, and hard to segue out of that, but I know you will quickly talk about the Oilers. You actually went to an Oilers game against the Predators, and I wanted to know what you thought. They didn't do very well last year, so what are your thoughts this year, or at least based on the game that you saw? In my opinion, the first half of the season, you know, up until January, for the most part, and again, this is only my opinion, I don't think, and it's not just Edmonton, there's lots of other clubs. The first half of the season, you're trying to get the lines juggling, you're trying to get timing down, 
there's uh, a lot of factors that come into play. And the first 40 games, to me, if I have a choice to go to the second half or the first half, I will go watch the second half. Way better hockey. You know, when you're in the second half of the year, you kind of see how the standings are shaping up. You know how your, your season personally is shaping up. And usually that second half of the year, you're going to see a lot better hockey than the first half. I went to the Nashville game. After the first period, the shots were 6-4 to four for Nashville. Like, it wasn't that exciting. And, you know, I know when you're a player, you're trying your best, or you better be trying your best every single game. But some nights, you know what, it's just not going to be entertaining. That's just how it is. And uh, other nights, you go, this is the best game ever. So, it wasn't that entertaining. And, and the, the, they lost. Nashville's a good team. But they just played Friday, Saturday, Saturday night, I think. Friday night. Or Saturday afternoon. And they beat Nashville in Nashville 5-3. to three. And I think that is the first time the Oilers have beat Nashville in 13 or 15 games. So they've now won more games than they've lost. I would like to think that that's an indication that they're going to have a decent year. Connor McDavid. He continues to be the bright star game in and game out. I can't wait till, you know, the other the other guys start to connect and it's a, a good 100% team effort, team scoring. There's guys that played last year that weren't proud of their season. I can see that they've worked hard over the offseason and they're putting a better year together right from the start. And uh, Lucic is the guy I'm referring to, I believe. And I don't know, I think he's lost weight. But he knew that he could play better than he did. And if you judge how someone has done just by goals and assists, that doesn't always, that's not always accurate. Because we had a guy in Montreal named Bob Gainey. Invaluable what he could do on that ice. And every time he scored or got points, that was a bonus. And I think with Lucic, just with him being out there, as long as he continues to be physical and you know, it's so tough now to play a physical role because you don't even have to do very much at all. And, you know, you've got a penalty. So that poor guy, you know, he's got to use his size and his being physical to his advantage. It helps the team out. But, boy, you just do anything that's what they deem to be too aggressive. And you got two minutes or five minutes. And so it's a tough line to walk there. But... He's starting to have a good season and putting it together. And uh, I think the Oilers are going to be all right this year. If the first five, ten games or anything, the judge, they they should they should win the playoffs or get into the playoffs. And as I said before, in my opinion, it boils down to goaltending. So if the Oilers goaltending are stopping the puck, that gives the players, the forwards, the D, opportune time to at the other end to get some goals and uh and i think that's what's happening so far the goalies have stepped up and did a good job and then the last topic we'll cover for today is you i know you were honored to be invited to represent the oilers and the oilers alumni at the recent humboldt charity event where they were trying to raise money for four local players that um died in the bus tragedy so I guess you could talk a little bit about how the event went. And then you shared a story on Twitter about Paul Coffey that is, 
I don't know if it's going viral, but it's definitely getting a good reception. So if you can also talk about that. At this banquet, I was uh, in Grand Prairie, and I had to drive back. I had car problems. Oh, it was a long day for me. And uh, when I got there, you know, to this banquet, the fundraiser, there it was, it was a nice setting. There was 800 people that had paid and bought tables to help raise money for the humble Bronco players that lived in St. Albert, and they're going to put benches and other things in the players' names, and uh, really good cause. So a lot of, uh, there's about 10 of us in the Oilers alumni that were there, and we were all glad to. We sat at different tables. I was fortunate enough, I was right near the front, and so I was sitting near the four families that had lost their son to the tragedy in the, in the bus crash. And when the they had a couple singers in them, I apologize, there was one singer who was from Toronto, they, and Tom Cochran, they only sang one song each. And this this singer who played a guitar, country song like Country Western, came up and he had actually wrote a song for this event. He sang it, it was very good. And he had this guitar made, he had a friend that did some etching of the I don't know what the final number was. We'll say 15 players, 16 players that died. And uh, they had all their faces on his guitar, the front of his guitar. And it was very well done. So he sang a song. And then part of the fundraiser, they auctioned that off. And so really it was only... That guitar meant more to the families who lost their loved one. So nobody else was bidding on it. It was pretty well just the families because that's who should get it. And I think it got up to about 6700 is what the bidding was. And you get Chris Joseph, who used to play with the Oilers and some other NHL teams. He lost his son, unfortunately. And I could see him and his wife kind of talking back and forth. And I think, as I said, they were up to 6700 was their bid. And then the other table, who also had lost his son, I think they went 6800 And then I guess that was the point. That the Josephs had to back off, and the other table got this guitar. Then Tom Cochran got up and he started to sing, and uh, they auctioned off that guitar. And so there were some numbers going back and forth, and Paul Coffey just said $10,000. And uh, he just immediately gave it to the Josephs. You know, it didn't have the pictures of the boys on it, but just the thought of why he did it is, to, is just to help the Josephs out. And, uh, you know, Maybe that guitar was going to remind them of this banquet that they went. And uh, it was just a a gesture that when it was all over, I had to go over to see Koff and uh, I shook his hand. And that meant a lot for me to see that these kind of people are still out there. There's so many people that do things for themselves or they do something because the cameras are on them. And, and that's the reason they do it. Paul Coffey did this from his heart. And he told me, he said, you know, I was kind of sleeping, meaning like he wasn't, he wasn't tuned into bidding on that first one, first guitar with the pictures, because he said I probably would have gone after that for him. But, you know, when I thought about it later, I, I'm glad Paul didn't get involved in that guitar because, you know, it's the two families that it was down to that wanted it. And it wouldn't be right for Paul just to go out bid the one family and give it to the Josephs. I just think it was up to those two to work it out. But but by Paul stepping up and just doing a little something for the Josephs and 
It was that kind gesture where he got nothing in return. And uh, I don't even know if it was mentioned in the paper, but when I see people that do something like that, it always stays with me. And I, I wish that I had more funds available that I could go around and help people that really need it or do some good. And when I saw Paul do it, you know, I've always believed if you see something good or you hear something good said about somebody, it doesn't do any good just to keep it to yourself. So when I was thinking about what Paul did, I had to go over and shake his hand and, and really just tell him, you know, he just moved up in my books. I told him not that that's going to make his day, but I told him that. And, uh, and again, it did my heart a lot of good to see somebody for no motive other than to maybe make the Josephs feel a little bit better. And uh, Paul did it for all the right reasons. So, Paul Coffey, you weren't only a good hockey player, you're a good human being. So, thanks for doing that. Just because it's hockey season, we I think you probably coached, including me, uh, kids hockey for 20 years. Give or take. Yeah, yeah, maybe 15. And, you know, I coached my daughter, Jessica, in, uh, at, you know, this, the sports that I played is what I coached. And Chris is right. We put, you know, him into sports. Uh, I wouldn't take, well, I don't like that sport. I would say you've got to try it. And then if you didn't like it, you don't have to play again. So uh, it wasn't good enough to say I, I don't want to do it. We, I, we made them. So, I mean, they played baseball, they played soccer, hockey. They didn't like football, and I didn't want to coach football, so I didn't get involved in that one. But So, you know, when I talk about coaching, and we're referring to hockey specifically, but it, it, it it's not things that I've learned about coaching kids, and I don't even know if I've learned it or it's just something that, to me, it's common sense. You could apply this as a coach to any sport, like any sports where, you know, kids are playing. One thing when you coach, whatever sports, and for me, I'll just use hockey, you have to remember as a coach, kids pay to play, right? They pay to play. And one of my first lessons that, uh, oh, i got to tell you, when I we lived in Rye, New York, and I was... Just finished my career with the Rangers and uh, got into computer consulting. My son, I'm going to say, was about six years old. And we got him into soccer. And we're telling him, you know what, you're going to have so much fun. So Chris was a tall boy, and so he was uncoordinated. And, you know, if you're not quite as tall, you're a lot more coordinated at a young age. And so it happened to be... My wife's, a friend of hers, a husband was the coach. And if there was 10 games that season, Chris just sat on the bench the whole time. And he really got on the field. And when you're six years old, your goal is we got to not, we got to win every game. We got to win every game. That's not the goal. Your goal is a coach. Now remember, these kids pay to play. His kid never come off the field. You know, he wanted to win at all costs. You got to, what your job as a coach is to make sure that when the season is over, that these kids had fun. And the barometer, whether, you know, these are six-year-olds or 17-year-olds, the barometer whether you did a good job coaching or not was how many of those kids are going to play that sport next year. So if you did a good job 
they can't wait to sign up for the next season. And that was, if they all wanted to join the next year, then I know I did a real good job coaching. And that was my goal, was to make sure they all wanted to come back. And when this guy was just sitting my boy on the, on the, you know, on the bench, so he'd lose interest and he'd be walking up and down picking dandelions and the coach would say, get over here, you might go on. Oh, I tell you, my eyes were just spinning. I, I was going to go over and, you know, I'm not going to physically do anything, but I was going to just tear a strip off this guy. I've been in sports my whole life and that's not how you coach kids. But my wife said, you know, I'm a friend of the coach's wife and you can't be talking like that. Oh, I, honestly, I'm getting mad just thinking about how brutal that was. So if you're listening out there, don't be like that guy. You let the kids play and have fun. And winning is a bonus at that age. They just turn them into soccer fans or basketball fans or whatever the sport is. That's the idea is they just have some fun and they want to play next year. So just remember that. Kids pay to play and let them enjoy it. And if they want to, they want to pick dandelions. Yeah. Just let them pick dandelions. Yeah, well, no, you know, I don't remember that. Yeah, but, but just let I me mean, just let the kids play. You, you know. Anyways, you're getting me going. So yeah. the other thing is, I've learned when I see not so much when they're young kids, okay, but as you're getting older, you're not doing the kids any favor by because if you ask the kids, do you want to have a hard practice? They're never going to say yes. But if you want the kids to improve, and again, it's not just hockey, it's any sport, more particular to as the kids are getting older, you can work them harder. So what I've learned in pro sports, and I've learned it when I was younger, I was like 15 playing football, contact football, and some of my coaches were ex-Winnipeg Blue Bombers, which if you're listening from the States is in the Canadian Football League. So these guys know what to do. And I was so fortunate. I always had good coaches. Like I always did. But ah, I never I never played at a level where they worked. I never ran up and down a football field so much in my life and did so many wind sprints. Man, it was hard. But you know, it gave you the work ethic that, you know, if you if 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 you want to get better, because you you Play the same way you practice. So if you can go and practice and you want to fool around and you don't work hard, and when the game comes and you say, now I'm going to try, it doesn't work that way. So so coaches, as as the young kids, it's got to be fun. And, you know, you can make them skate and give them time to rest. But, you know, there's some coaches that uh, I hear them say, oh, my guys didn't play well last night. I'm going to skate them so hard tomorrow. They're going to have puke practices. That just makes me sick when they start talking like that. You know, there's no such thing. You should never have a puke practice because I believe the kids are trying out there at whatever sport. But I would tell my kids, as again, didn't work the young ones as hard, but as they got older, I would say to them, there is no team that is going to work harder than you guys. And our first half of the season... You're going to see the teams that we play, and if we get beat, you watch what we do to them the second half of the season. And every single year, talk about gratifications. I would give. I t- yeah, I told them I'll never give you a puke practices if you if you, you know, didn't play well. But you're going to work hard because that's just what we got to do when you play sports if you want to get better. 
and I'd always give them time to get their breath back. And another thing is when I make them do laps, like when I played for Scotty Bowman in Montreal, like he was, uh, he had his do. If you've ever skated laps, you can't even do it. 38 laps each way at top speed. So we didn't even get through 38 going one way. And he just realized that, okay, he, he called the practice, right? I mean, that, that, that was just a little bit goofy. And so with my kids, I'd say to them, okay, I need you to do four laps in one direction and give me your hardest. And, you know, they do four and then give them their breath. And now other direction, do three and then let them get their breath and then do two the other and so on. And this is how we started it off. And one of the things, there's kids that are real good skaters, but there's kids that always would come in last. And some coaches will say, if you are the last two or three, you're going to do extra laps. Well, I would tell my kids, you know what? I don't care if you come in last. If you're giving me the best that you got and you're trying your very hardest, you'll never see me ever give you extra laps. And so even the guys that weren't as good, they were just trying their best. And they still came in last, but they did their best. So how could you ask for any more than that? So, you know, I didn't make any of these guys that were last feel bad and and give them extra work because they weren't first. I mean, that's there's always going to be guys last because they're just not as good or maybe they're a little overweight or whatever the reason is. But kids pay to play. You know, as a coach, we don't realize it, but... Whether you want the role or not, you're a little bit of a role model. And uh, one of the things that kind of put it in perspective to me is when I was coaching, I think it was like a midget major team. And I believe these were like seven, six, 16-year-olds. But they were big. And people thought we were in two leagues, two divisions higher. Um, because our boys were big and they were mean. What a mean team I had. Like, they were tough boys. And so when we played teams, our guys wanted to rough everybody up. And it was hard controlling these guys, but I did. I, I, you know, as a coach, you can control what they do on the ice. So we went into a tournament one time. And our first team we were taking on, you could just see that the team in the warm-up that we're taking on was in the wrong category. Like, they put them in the wrong division. They were not at our level. They had, Their jerseys were too big for them. They weren't very big. They were skinny. And and before the game, our guys are saying, oh, we're going to kill those guys. Boy, I'm going to run them. And that bothered me a lot. And I told my guys, I said, listen, these kids are just like you over there. They love the game of hockey. And that's why they're playing the game. They love the game of hockey. And don't take that away from them by going out there and playing a tough guy role, running them and trying to hurt them. That's not what I want to accomplish here. We're going to beat them. And I said, even if somebody on their team takes a run at you, please make me proud and just turn the other cheek. Just no matter what, just don't go after these guys. And sure enough, as the game went along, I had a couple of the team members on the other side took runs at my tough boys. And they looked at me and I just shook my head. Don't do anything. And so, you know, when the game was over, we beat them and they shook hands. And I remember I was proud of them and I thanked them. And I said, you guys did the right thing by not trying to hurt these guys. And when I walked out, there was a group of about seven of the parents from the other team. And they asked, you're the coach. I said, yeah. 
And they just say, we want to thank you for controlling your boys. Because our guys, they could have got hurt by your guys. And we saw that they had control. And we were in the wrong, they put us in the wrong division. But, and they just thanked me. So anyways, you know, I knew I did the right thing. Many years later, one of the guys on my team, you know, he's not playing hockey anymore. He's playing recreational hockey. And he just said, Mr. Connor, you taught me a lot about life. And especially when you, you know, talked about not hurting those guys, how they just love the game the way you do. Anyways, he gave me some pats on the back. And, you know, I didn't really know that some of these things that I would tell them that they just file it and, 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 and it maybe affects them the way they play from now on. But I tried to be a positive role model. And you have to always pat these kids on the back. You can't yell at them in front of, you know, you know, the, the other players, and if you have something to say, I had one guy that would swear at me, and I just took him in the hallway, and I just told him, I said, listen, I don't talk to you that way, and you don't talk to me that way. And so that was the last time he ever swore, but I never embarrassed these guys. Um, so I just think as, as, as a coach going into a season, you know, you, you just got to be so positive with these kids and make them feel good about themselves when they do something good on the ice. Just pat them and be sincere. And when the season is over, here's something I thought about. You know, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, like eight years old or my 17-year-olds. When the year was over, I never asked the parents for any money. I would go out and I would buy each kid a trophy. There's some cheap trophies out there, little plastic things. I would never just give one of those. So I paid some good money for a nice trophy. And everybody on the team, if there's 15 kids on the team, I would put down to the best face-off, to the fastest skater, hardest worker, best defenseman. I mean, you got to give somebody a label that they're the best at. And so when the season was over, we had a little get-together. And I would call each child up by their name and kind of put my arm around them for a second. And I'd talk about so-and-so. And, you know, once you coach this kid for a whole season, you kind of know what each kid's all about, and you don't have to write anything down. It just comes from the heart. There was a few kids you had to really reach down to figure what you could say their best at without looking too phony. But, you know, I did that every year, and uh, I, I know that a lot of the kids that I bump into now, you know, they say, Mr. Connor, do you remember me? You gave me the best defenseman trophy. Do you remember me? And one of the boys that I coached, he owns a bar. And my wife was in in a bar restaurant. And so he came over to the table and he said, Mrs. Connor, you know, your husband coached me. And he gave me the best whatever trophy. And it's sitting on my bar right now. It's still up there. So, you know, you make these kids feel good and make them feel like they did something. And it was noticed out there in a positive note. And it just goes a long, long way. So, you know, that's my thoughts on coaching. It's uh, just some of the basics. But if you got any questions, you know, please write in and uh, we'll answer them. And then the, the last quick thing that I, I know is important is how you would look for the people that didn't have the support. You want to talk about that quick? Well, there's kids on our team, especially when they're pretty young. It used to bother me that, uh, okay, I like the idea that the kids are playing, the parents put the money up, and whatever sport. But in hockey, 
They would drive them to the arena, whether it's an early morning practice, whatever time, and they would just stale the vehicle, drop them off, come back in an hour, hour and a half for the kids. So they didn't go in there. They didn't tie the skates up. They didn't stand and watch the, you know, the child, you know, practice hard and give them a pat on the back. They, they were just like a, like a paid chauffeur. And so when the kids came in, I would tell you in a few seasons in a row, I was doing up 11 pairs of skates because the parents thought, oh, somebody else would do it. Somebody else would do it. And I don't think that that's right. I think you got to be involved. My dad, he would always, as a young age, take me to the rink. He didn't just drop me off. He'd go and put his skates on and we'd go out there together. And they're, you know, by doing this, it come to a time when I would say, oh, I really like skating. I like hockey. And I'd go public skating. I could do things on my own. But at the young age, I think it's very important that you show up and you make them feel good. And when you notice the effort out there or if they've done something good, you give them that pat on the back. And so you got to give those kids support. Don't just drop them off and then disappear and then stay in the parking lot until the kids come back out again. Get involved. Well, that was uh, brought me back to my, my hockey playing days. What, did I drop you off? <laughs> no, the awards you gave me. But um, yeah, I, and I, I remember what you gave me, most improved. And do you remember I was upset with that? Well, let me just say this. I, I know why you'd be most, why you would be upset with that. Because growing up, I would say without exaggerating, Every team I played for, the parents would put in for some trophies. And for five years in a row, I got the most improved player. And I used to say, does that mean I was real shitty when the season started? Is that what that means? Or I was good and I got even better. So maybe that's what you're thinking, Chris? Yeah, I think I said that to you. Yeah, well, so so no, I think you, you were good and you got better. But now I know the strategy behind the trophies. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for, for listening. We want to ask if you can uh, send a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Send in your questions and tell a friend it's hockey season and we need your help to share the podcast. So I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you.